Hello, everyone. Coming right up on the Van Maren Show, we're going to be talking about truth in media with a rising star in conservative journalism. That's coming right up. Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and you're listening to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, I'm going to be talking to Alessandra Boki. You guys might recognize that name. She's been on this show twice before, wants to talk about what was going on in Hong Kong and how it impacts Christians. Another time to discuss the impact of COVID-19 when she was in Rome. She's a freelance journalist who's reported from Hong Kong, from North Africa, from across Europe. She's a very, very good writer. I've enjoyed her pieces in uh, First Things, National Review, The Wall Street Journal, and a wide range of other publications. She's recently arrived in New York City to begin a fellowship position with The Wall Street Journal, and she joined me to talk a little bit about her move, about truth in journalism, and just uh, scattered thoughts on a wide range of issues, including the differences between European and American conservatism. Here is that conversation. All right, just to start off, the last time we talked to you, uh, you were actually in Italy talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. So just to start off, how did you end up in New York City? I ended up here because I applied for a fellowship. It's called the Joseph Rago Memorial Fellowship at the Wall Street Journal. I applied in uh, February. Uh, it was actually just before the pandemic started. And there were two processes. Uh, I passed the first one and then there was an interview which was held uh, remotely because of the pandemic. And I was uh, accepted as a fellow. So I um, for it to start this job and I will start in a couple of weeks. What's the basis for this fellowship? Because I, I know a lot of writers at the Wall Street Journal, because like most conservatives, it's one of the, the, the newspapers I actually read. But who was who was uh, Joseph Rago? Rago was a journalist at the Wall Street Journal, a writer also. Uh, he worked at the Journal for many, many years. He was part of the editorial board as well, because he was so excellent at what, at what he did. And when he was he won uh, the Pulitzer Prize because of his uh, coverage on healthcare specifically, although he wrote on a variety of issues. And if what, whatever you think about the uh, debate surrounding healthcare, his uh, pieces, you can read them on the uh, Pulitzer websites, were excellent in terms of the argument, in terms of substantiating with data and uh, research. It's, it, it was clear that he had developed sources um, that gave him specific uh, information and insights, which is a quality that, at least today, not many journalists have. And he was able to influence policymakers uh, from both sides of the aisle. So he was uh, exceptional at what he did. So one of the, the things I was kind of interested in when I heard about you securing this fellowship is, you know, you've been on this show twice, wants to talk about uh, Christians in Hong Kong with everything going on there. And then, and then, as I mentioned, with the COVID-19 pandemic. But I've known you primarily as a sort of boots on the ground journalist. Most of your freelance pieces have actually been things that you went, things that you covered. And now, as I understand it, this is more of an opinion piece. I think the only recent opinion piece, if you could call it that, was your piece on 
and first things on, on why you became Catholic. But most of your pieces are more journalism than editorial, are they not? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, that is a transition that is not very easy for me, uh, but I see it as a challenge because, like you said, I've always focused on reporting uh, because I didn't really to really express my opinion on certain issues. I think we have so many uh, opinion writers today, but so few of them actually have the expertise to really know what they're talking about. So I recognized that I needed to gain that experience and that knowledge before I was able to, I didn't feel comfortable really expressing my specific opinion beyond social media, of course, right. on uh, given issues in newspapers. So I mostly focused on reporting. However, I wrote, like you said, that opinion, well, it wasn't really an opinion piece, but sort of a more personal piece for first things. And that was very hard for me to write because I don't like to talk about personal issues surrounding myself or, you know, to make it about myself. This is what I don't really like about journalism nowadays. It's all about personalities and names rather than substance. So I always try to escape that. However, I do believe that opinion does have value if you um, kind of build the expertise in a particular area and you substantiate your arguments. So out of curiosity, what are some of the editorialists that you've really enjoyed reading yourself? Because there's a few that stand out for everybody. I I forget um, um, who actually said this, but they talked about how Charles Krauthammer had actually raised the uh, raised editorial writing to sort of an art form, and he really has. Um, one of my uh, friends who's a columnist for the Washington Post always cites George Will as his favorite. At the Wall Street Journal, I've always thought Peggy Noonan's writing was particularly beautiful. Who would be one of your favorites? I agree that Peggy's writing is really good. I don't want to sort of say names that may be too controversial, but I um, I go mostly by, like I said, I'm not too interested in names so much as substance. So when I open newspapers or pages, I really go for like what argument interests me and um, you know what topic I want to know more about. Um, and then I, if I read something from a specific author that I, you know, really notice that he's really good at it, then I will follow that author specifically. Um, and I used to do that on social media. So I like a variety. For example, uh, the person directing this fellowship, I read a lot of Daniel McCarthy's work as well. Um, but I also read people that have very different perspectives, like war reporters, like Aris Rusinas is one of uh, I really like his work as well. Uh, so it really depends. I try to have a variety of people that I or or uh, newspapers that I follow. So when you're tackling editorial writing, one of the first questions I'd wanted to ask you in regards to the switch is is Europe and America are are very very different political landscapes. I think one of the one of the things most people get wrong is that they think that a conservative means the same thing in the U.S. as it does in Europe, and it. A conservative in Europe is different in almost every country. I'm only familiar with a few of them, such as the Netherlands, where my family is from. But it looks very differently across the continent than it does in America. So what's going to be a challenge for you in switching? Or have you been sort of subsumed by the omnipresent American landscape as well, even from over there like the rest of us? Uh, I would say that Europe's conservatives are somewhat different, but because they're very influenced by U.S. culture and politics as well. So whatever happens in the U.S., I would say you see it in Europe to a lesser extent. 
And with conservative ideology, after the Cold War, you know, there wasn't really that much. We used to have a communist party, um, but then with the Soviet Union collapse, I would say in Italy specifically, but also in Europe, uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, that had no relevance anymore almost. And uh, so we really have the same kind of uh, bi bipolarism, I think, that you have in the United States. And uh, European conservatives are also in favor of free markets, but to a lesser extent. So they would never dispute the importance, say, of um, nationalized healthcare. Uh, at least not in continental Europe. In the UK, that's different. Uh, it's more similar to the United States, perhaps. But in continental Europe, conservatives, yes, they're in favor of free markets, but they would never dispute, uh, say, socialized education or um, state-run healthcare for, for everyone. One of the, the interesting things on, on the coverage of populism in, in, in Europe, so if you take somebody like Viktor Orban, for example, um, who's a very complicated figure, like I know his son-in-law is a, is a billionaire uh, and once said that the reason he got so rich was God, luck, and Viktor Orban. So I don't take uh, these things as far as Anne Applebaum and her recent book, Twilight of Democracy, would, but I know he's a complicated figure, but I've always found the experiment they're launching in Hungary in regards to reducing the abortion rate, encouraging marriage, discouraging divorce, um, sort of making the economy mold itself to promoting family values. I find that experiment very interesting in and of itself. But that sort of experiment would have a lot more difficult of a time taking off in the conservative American sphere just due to the fact that there's these sort of knee-jerk orthodoxies in regards to free markets, in regards to what makes you a fiscal conservative. And so there's been an attempt uh, um, I went to the National Conservatism Conference in Washington, D.C., where they're sort of trying to push closer to those policies. Um, but what's what's your take based on, on your research? I know you've interviewed a lot of these figures out in Europe. Do you think something like a, uh, an industrial policy, a, a family-based economy, has any chance in the United States, or is that going to remain a primarily a, a European phenomenon? Well, I would say that that's exclusively an Eastern European phenomenon, and perhaps that's uh, unique to Hungary as well, because in Western Europe, you don't see the same family policies, and in Italy, uh, especially, you don't see those policies being put forward. Um, I would say that Arban is a, also another, uh, something else I wanted to add about the differences between American and European conservatism is that an important topic that you mentioned is abortion. And I would say European conservatives oppose abortion, but the, the debate is not as polarized as in the United States, accepted uh, the first trimester, more or less, by liberals and conservatives, uh, unless they're very religious. Uh, but it's not, it doesn't have, it's not, doesn't have the same controversy as in the United States. And I think that's makes the United States special in that way because you do ha have these difficult conversations that are pretty taboo in Europe. Um, as for Hungary and Viktor Orban, he was able to institute that family policy also because he relies on uh, funds by the European Union and there's a string attached that he's constantly being in a way, uh, not threatened, but you know, told, well, if you get these funds to do this, then you have to accept, say, migrant quotas or all these different conditions that are imposed on the country. So it's not like Hungary is pursuing these policies independently. Um, I'm not sure if the same could be applied to the United States because I think it's a different economy. Mm -hmm. 
maybe that's a question for you. <laughs> but as for Western Europe, like we don't have the same family policies. And really we have, uh, at least in Italy specifically, there's a huge bureaucracy that stops, I think, um, individuals and couples and families from prospering and being able to afford to have families because having a family is such a cost. So what subjects are you planning to tackle first as, as you start to write editorials? Because, yeah, you mentioned there will be difficulty jumping from sort of on-the-ground reporting where your opinion isn't supposed to be part of it to writing editorials. But what subjects, uh, right now, writing about anything is sort of like tap dancing through a minefield. So which one do you plan to tackle first? Um, well, that's really for the editors to decide, but I'm interested in the same topics that I've covered up until now. Like I said, I prefer to express an opinion on set, feel comfortable really um, talking about that I know that I have knowledge and expertise to do so, and that I have also the sources that can give me information. Um, and that would be North Africa, where I started working as a journalist and Europe, where I'm from, um, and also Hong Kong, where I've worked uh, and studied briefly uh, as a study abroad program. But also, I'm open to working, like, I've worked in other countries as well, as in, like, I've covered other issues in other countries, and I always try to find, to find sources on the ground, regardless if you're not there. So that has transformed journalism in a way. Um, for example, when there were the Iran protests, I found people who were experts on that issue and that you can also interview anonymously and in that has facilitated the process of you know being able to do authentic reporting without necessarily being there yeah no the online thing has definitely made it a, a lot easier to do that sort of reporting because you can you know me like private message somebody who's actually at a protest on twitter and they can reply while they're still at the protest and kind of tell you what's going on. What um, when you're looking at at jumping from from Europe to the United States, um, what's your long term plan? Would you prefer to do journalism in the U.S.? Because I find that that European politics is interesting just because you ha you can drive 45 minutes and there's an entirely different po uh, political paradigm, entirely different set of issues. Um, in some ways, to to report widely on on Europe takes. Um, more journalistic skills than reporting uh, in here in the United States. What's what's your kind of long-term journalism plan, or do you not have one yet? I'm not sure yet. I tend to take uh, opportunities as they come and see where they take me. Obviously, I'd like to settle somewhere in the United States. It's the second home for me. I have family from here as well. Uh, so I consider the option absolutely of settling here and... Um, continuing the work that I've done until until now, but also building on that experience and being able to do something a bit different based perhaps on more analysis and less having to be, you know, in the trenches and doing that like kind of frontline journalism. Uh, so yes, we'll see. What's your take on everything going on in the States right now? Like you're arriving to pursue journalism in the middle of a pandemic, probably the ugliest election we've seen since um, 
I'm actually not going to pick one. It's probably just straight up the ugliest, but the pandemic has also made it a lot more complicated. You've got both protests and riots going on simultaneously and people trying to figure out which is which. So you're showing up in, in a very interesting point. We're not quite at 1968 yet. I think a lot of people forgot that there was 4,000 bombings in the continental United States in a period of 18 months back then. So we're not at that stage yet, but in some ways we're pretty close because the divisions are even wider than they used to be. So when you show up, what's your take on everything that's going on? Because you probably have a fresher perspective than some of us who have been in the middle of it for a couple of years. Well, I had a, more of an outsider perspective, perhaps. Like I said, America is, has always been a second home for me. Now it's becoming a first home. Well, it is a first home now. <laughs> but uh, I was following the protests from the outside, and it was very difficult to under, to have a balanced view on what was happening. And I felt that uh, the mainstream media from, you know, it was very divided, both on the conservative and the liberal side. And it was hard to find like a nuanced and informed view of what was going on. And I felt that the, uh, I liked reading the journal because it did have that kind of uh, diversity of views. And it, it analyzes, analyzed arguments based on their merits rather than their source or, um, you know, what was, fashionable or the pressure that there was to say certain things and not others. So I had a more, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable expressing a specific opinion on what side I would take, but it seemed that the protests were, at least the liberal side of the media wasn't accurately depicting uh, some of the scenes that we saw on social media that were being reported independently just, just by private citizens. I was hoping you were going to say that the protests were largely peaceful. <laughs> well, that, that's not what I saw. Well, so that that's that's sort of the interesting thing. That was another question I wanted to ask you because you've kind of there's a lot of independent journalists in in the United States. Uh, in in Canada, there's also a few independent journalists. There's now an independent press gallery um, in Canada as well, made up of 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 some sort of dissident media that you can understand why they're dissident media. And then there's agenda driven media. You have um, Ezra Levant and the Rebel, which is is at, he would call he would call himself uh, um, an advocacy journalist. He's there to cover the other side of the story. That is what his website says explicitly. But a lot of the like the major on the ground reporting in the United States during the riots has has been from no mainstream media at all. So I think the Daily Caller was the only outlet on the ground in Wisconsin uh, when things started to get lit on fire. Uh, you've got a bunch of uh, individuals who show up in Portland for the riots. Well, whenever you, it's pretty hard to miss a riot in Portland, but they're they're still there and they're live streaming it, and they're and they're the ones providing most of the information that other organizations like the New York Times, which does have a very good investigative record, usually comes in later and just actually takes the video footage and uses that to form the basis of their reporting. So, what do you think the role and the danger of independent reporting is? Because on one hand. You often don't have somebody who's subject to the like the stringent editorial standards of a large publication. On the other hand, there's a lot of these guys who are who are uncovering stories and putting stories out there that nobody else has. Yes, I completely agree. And actually, I was reading a piece by uh, Joseph Rago on the specific issue that he wrote in 2006, which is called the Blog Mob. At the time, there were more blogs than say alternative media channels, but it really refers to the same phenomenon and 
my view is that the the quality of alternative and dissident media isn't the same as mainstream media and it's not good in my view in many cases not all cases but they hardly do uh independent really uh, groundbreaking or exclusive reporting they kind of attach themselves to what the media is already reporting and then they criticize you know the media's perspective the mainstream media's perspective on this or that issue and they find something else like a counter narrative but who's really dominating the narrative it's the mainstream media because they have the, the kind of the expertise and the tools and the standards to do so and for now i do not think that the alternative or dissident media is up to the same level as you know institutions that have lived for so long and the reason why yes they've lost trust but they continue to be essentially at the same place that they were before like they still read the journalists receive the same salaries and they're still you know broadcasts all over the country uh, is because they have quality and it's it's not just about substance it's also about how you present your arguments and how you substantiate your arguments yeah so there's there's editorial standards and and here's the difficulty because in social conservative circles right there's there's a lot of different um, news organizations that do break stories nobody else will cover right so with the center for medical progress the planned parenthood and the baby part scandal and all that which is now in court filings coming out week after week being proven to be true you only had a handful of of places you have well the daily caller um you have life site you have live action you have a bunch of these groups they're the ones putting it out there and what the media is primarily doing is attempting to discredit it right you have the same thing with the bbc and like BBC's documentaries are often phenomenal and their budget, of course, makes alternative media um, like look utterly puny in contrast. But I read a couple of stories from the BBC over the last eight weeks where they were referring to this um, this aggressive um, female pedophile was the story. And I clicked on the story because I'm like, that seems like a fairly rare thing. What a, like what a weird story. And I click on it and you see that as soon as I saw the picture, um, it's it's a male identifying as female, but not even attempting to appear like one, not not attempting to uh, pass, as they call it. And this whole story doesn't actually even refer to the fact that this person is transgender at any point in the story. And it seems like pretty relevant information, especially when you find out what crimes were committed and how they were perpetrated on the victims. And this means that you have a media that at a certain stage, the ideological lens renders all of their fact checking, all of their editorial guidelines. Um, it's, it's not good enough to give them credibility because they're also following a new set of ideological rules. That means they're promoting a specific worldview that's not rooted in truth specifically or high editorial standards. And this doesn't refer to some newspapers, um, especially I, I think of, I really appreciate the National Post, the Wall Street Journal. There's a handful of magazines as well. I find the National Review to be very good. But the mainstream media is now buying into ideologies that mean that they are not primarily rooted in, in fealty to the truth, but primarily rooted in, um, I don't know, you can call it critical theory. There's any number of different ways you can describe it. But what would your take on that be? That is absolutely correct. They are more rooted in ideology and they are afraid of the backlash, I think, of the elites more than popular opinion. They're afraid of backlash from, you know, university institutions and from, you know, political parties. Uh, and that's like the kind of, uh, or like urban, you know, very educated parts of the country. Or I wouldn't say maybe educated, but who have like very progressive views, like those are the kinds of people they're pandering to because those people are the loudest. 
but they don't recognize the fact of the so-called silent majority, that they're, the majority of people actually do not agree with that narrative. And so it's a self-defeating approach. And you're right, they're more concerned with uh, kind of catering to that kind of audience as opposed to reporting the truth. And they've lost their integrity and credibility in many respects. But like I said, they're still dominating the narrative and the media narrative because the quality of their work is superior. And also they don't uh, present themselves in a hyper-partisan way. You know, if you look at, for example, alternative media, they make, they say, oh, we don't pretend to not be, to, we don't pretend to be objective. So that makes us better. Well, not really. I mean, I don't think you should pretend to be objective, but I think you should at least try to make that your aim or in some way, Oh I, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that your editorial standards are still oriented towards uncovering the truth, not just promoting a specific yes, worldview. So both, uh, both are not uncovering the truth, but on one side, one is claiming that they at least are trying to, but even if they're not, but the other side is just like playing out, no, we're not uncovering the truth. This is just our opinion. You know, this is just... Uh, and, and, and I think that's a big mistake because integrity in journalism and media and writing is everything. So how, what do you do about the fact that we're now operating on different standards of what truth actually is? So you can find um, any number of socially conservative uh, outlets versus, say, let's say, look at the budget of the New York Times and things like that. But one of them will refuse to actually admit that they human being in the womb is a baby, even though, you know, Quill added this great piece highlighting the fact that 97% of embryologists all agree on when life begins, all of those things. And so you end up having these mainstream media outlets with, with a ton of money, a ton of really experienced journalists, a lot of contacts and things like that, that are still operating on, under a different understanding of what truth is, which informs how they report on the abortion debate. So, like, to give you an example, in Ireland, when I was going through the coverage during the abortion referendum, because I was in Ireland leading up to it, and I was reading through all the newspapers, and they accepted as, as, as a basic fundamental underlying truth that the baby in the womb wasn't a baby, and they were operating from that perspective, despite the fact that it's provably false. You can watch National Geographic's Inside the Womb, Life Magazine, Time Magazine did an essay uh, recently on this. You can go to the um, you know Endowment for Human Development. It doesn't matter where you go. They're operating from an uh, from ideology, not from fact. And that's the difficulty for alternative media, right? Is if you're operating based on the idea that a woman is something that can no longer be defined, it's something you choose to be, and the same thing would go for a man, or that the baby in the womb is a clump of cells because that's what Planned Parenthood's talking points are, despite the fact that embryologists agree. How do you, when we talk about the mainstream media having higher standards of truth, I understand what you're saying in, return, in terms of editorial standards, but at what point is their submission to ideology on fundamental issues of truth and biological reality render a lot of their reporting simply untrustworthy? Yes, I agree that they have lost much of their, I mean, we would have to talk specifically about what, which media channels, but which media channels, but. In, in America, to generalize, it would be in regards to the trans issue and the abortion issue would be too, because they're making falsifiable claims. No, I absolutely agree that they have lost much of their trustworthiness in the eyes of the public and their integrity, and they're mostly driven by ideology. And despite the fact that they claim to be to to base their reporting on science, many case, many cases that doesn't happen. And you see that 
also in the transgender debates, which is just unbelievable the way that yeah. it's being heard. Um, so yes, that is absolutely true. I'm talk. I'm more. Our argument was more based on the quality of their reporting, despite the fact that they they're actually very smart in the way that they present themselves. Because yes, they're driven by ideology. Yes, that makes them untrustworthy. But they still present themselves in a way that's acceptable, and you know, like mm. you said, they have editorial standards, and they don't kind of shout and lash out and or you know write things in a way that's very um, un, let's say unprofessional or inadequate. So they have this appearance of actually being uh, reporting the truth or being scientific and that gives, lends them a lot of credibility even if they don't deserve it because like I said substance is essential but it's also about presentation. Yeah. Yeah. Final question. Um, where can people find your work going forward as you start producing editorial and commentary? Could I define my work going forward? No, I said, uh, where can people find it? Oh, right. Uh, well, I have not been using social media so much lately because I think that uh, it can be detrimental to your work. So I'd rather focus on my actual work. And so, well, it depends when I'll start, if I'll start writing um, pieces, like maybe op-eds uh, on specific issue for the opinion page in, in the journal. So that's mostly what, where my work will be based. I might start using social media again soon just because it's very easy to find sources there. Um, and in that case, you can find me on Twitter at Alessa Bocchi and, and that's spelled B-O-C-P-H-I. Um, or on, I guess, Facebook as well. I use Facebook too. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks so much for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Alessandra Bogey. Thank you so much for joining us. Please do like and subscribe to this podcast. Head over to LifeSightNews.com and click on the podcast tab. You can find past shows there. We really appreciate you joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.